Welcome to It Just So Happened! Hooray! I'm Richard Pulsford, stand-up comedian and amateur historian, and this is an alternative history show recorded for podcasts. The show is in two parts. In part one, we'll explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, the 26th of March. And in part two, we will look into some alternative histories of the place where tonight's show is being recorded, which is Glasgow! We are participating in the Glasgow International Comedy Festival now in its 17th year, one of 500 shows taking place over 18 days in approximately 68 venues. The festival is sponsored by White and Mackay, a whisky company based in Glasgow but owned by Philippines-based Emperador Distillers Inc, makers of Emperador Brandy. Emperador advertising emphasises success in life and traditional moral values such as hard work, ambition, listening to parents' advice and professionalism. Now if I'd had a large brandy, I'd be more likely to put two fingers up to all of that. Our venue tonight is the Iron Horse, a pub which first opened in 1872, so that's been quite a long shift for the staff. <laughs> uh, for many years the pub was called the Empire Bar. It served the theatre goers and stars of the famous Empire Theatre around the corner. The pub's website says, Some of our customers have told us about going to see some of the biggest stars in the world at the Empire. One described Frank Sinatra as rubbish. <laughs> Sinatra might have had a more favourable review if he'd adapted his songs for the locals. So offerings could have been come fry with me, New Yorker, New Yorker, and fry me to Danoon. two fry ones. Uh, one song which would have needed no adaption was I get a kick out of you. <laughs> now, there was a Scottish band called the Iron Horse. They headlined the 1994 Celts in Kent Festival. Uh, try and say that after a few brandies without causing offence. The Iron Horse is on West Nile Street. West Nile is the name of a fever. It's a viral infection which can cause headaches, rash, or confusion, and recovery can take weeks or months. Uh, with this in mind, let me now introduce tonight's panel. As they take their seats, please welcome David Crutchanks. Annie Gilfillan. Matt Jewell. And Vladimir McTavish. There's the squeak of chairs and wooden things away. Welcome to our guests. Uh, first, on my far right, uh, I'd like to introduce David Crookshanks. Now, what I know about David is he has an MA in writing television fiction from Glasgow Caledonian University, and he has a BA in art history from the Open University. Uh, David writes jokes and sketches for BBC Radio Scotland, including Breaking the News, and is passionate about history. Um, without further ado, I'm going to pass over this one microphone that we have between us over to David. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You ready? Good evening. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about a guy called Thomas Hancock. So it just so happened that on this day in 1865, the inventor of Thomas Hancock died. Oh. <laughs> he felt that way as well. Without him, we might never have had gas masks, wetsuits, and that most important of all Victorian inventions, the space opera. <laughs> the man who invented vulcanised rubber was born in Wiltshire on the 8th of May, 1786. Thomas Hancock grew up at a time when there was rudimentary contraception and condom condoms of the period were slippery and could not be trusted. A bit like Michael Gove. <laughs> As a third child of 12, Thomas watched his mum pump out kids faster than blood from a severed carotid artery. <laughs> and he witnessed just how exhausting childbirth was. So is it any wonder that he became obsessed with rubber? <laughs> Before his rubber fetish, however, Thomas had an early interest in woodworking. But sadly, his wooden condom didn't take off. <laughs> <laughs> After reports of 
spontaneous combustion among Victorian couples having intercourse. Although it did leave us with that memorable phrase, getting wood, to describe a Victorian man maintaining an erection with a light on. Undeterred by early setbacks, Hancock began experimenting with chemicals, but the fumes from mixing hardened rubber with sulphur were so potent that he could only be exposed to them for 30 minutes. This process became known as Hancock's half hour. <laughs> Shortly after, Hancock had a breakthrough at inventing the world's first masturbating, sorry, the world's first masticating machine, where hardened rubber pieces were mashed down and made into sheets of pliable rubber. This process involved pummeling the bejesus out of rubber pieces up and down furiously for five minutes, causing the emission of a tiny amount of warm, sticky wood. <laughs> Definitely not masturbating then. He called this process pickling because he wanted it kept a secret. Definitely not masturbating. <laughs> Finally, in 1843, he patented the process of heating rubber and sulphur together for two hours in an oven, or three minutes in a microwave, to achieve a horn-like solid. By this time, he was employing assistants to do the pickling, and many of them were going blind after just a few months. So, draw your own conclusions. Around that time, Charles Macintosh and the Macintosh Raincoat joined forces to improve Hancock's invention of what was now known as vulcanized rubber, named after the Roman god of fire, Vulcan, and that weird-looking eccentric actor in Star Trek, William Shatner. <laughs> <laughs> By the mid-1840s, these guys were inhaling so many chemicals that they often became high and started dancing around the lab as they worked. One night, an assistant in the lab stuck a piece of vinyl on the gramophone, and they ended up in the Guinness Book of Records as inventors of the world's first ever rave. It's said that Hancock and Macintosh offered tips doing big fish, little fish, cardboard box to be open spit was better than Freddie Mercury at Live Aid. Coincidentally, a Scot called John Haldane, living around the same time as Hancock, was inventing the gas mask and was using Hancock's rubber to perfect his design. In the early days, Haldane experimented with several versions of the gas mask, killing literally hundreds of thousands of British soldiers in the process until he realised that what he actually invented was a gimp mask. <laughs> By now, Hancock was causing a real sensation with his masticator. The resulting material was turned into stockings, gloves, suspenders, and Batman's entire wardrobe. <laughs> Celebrating his achievements, Hancock arrived home drunk one night and jumped into the masticator thinking it was a bath. He went right up to his waist, although not seriously injured, he now added rubber balls to his list of inventions. <laughs> Setbacks aside though, by 1850, Hancock was doing so well that in true British manufacturing tradition, he buggered off to Singapore where he hired 200 ladyboys while simultaneously back in Brexit. <laughs> Rubber was now being approved by a royal appointment and Queen Victoria was a massive fan and was often seen strutting around Windsor Castle in a one-piece rubber catsuit with Prince Albert on all fours wearing Haldane's now famous gimp mask. Well, that opium won't smoke itself. In 1855, Hancock and Macintosh continued to manufacture thousands of things out of rubber including earplugs, hot water bottles and Theresa May's backbone. <laughs> but just as Thomas was enjoying the trapping of the success, things were about to bounce into oblivion. In 1861, Prince Albert died. The official cause was typhoid, but sources close to the prince said that shortly before his death, he saw him struggling with a zip on his gimp mask. Victoria immediately banned rubber in the royal household, and despite many protests, including some very angry ones from Backstairs Billy, Rubber was banned. Time was being called on rubber in favour of more modern fabrics and Macintosh and Hancock finally broke their seal on their little rubber band, leaving it on the pavement with the thousands of other bands dumped by the postie. On the 26th of March, 1865, Thomas Hancock, now back in deal blighty, penniless and living above a Witherspoon in Stoke Newington, died. <laughs> <laughs> it's said in his obituary that Thomas died doing what he loved, 
which apparently was clutching his chest, gasping for breath, and choking on his own vomit. <laughs> <laughs> Many famous people turned up to pay their respects at his funeral, including Johnny Rotten, the inventor of the pogo stick, the Duke of Wellington, Lady Gaga, who wore a giant condom, and Stretch Armstrong. Thomas was buried in Highgate Cemetery and he seemed reluctant to leave this world. Paul Behrens had wanted to celebrate his invention and used rubber cords to lower the coffin into the ground around 50 or 60 times before Hancock was finally laid to rest. So I'd like to say thank you to Thomas Hancock, inventor of vulcanised rubber from Gimps, Catwomen, and to all you rubber lovers everywhere. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you so much. On this day in 1484, William Caxton printed Aesop's Fables. Aesop was a storyteller in ancient Greece who lived about six centuries before Christ. Some of his more famous stories include The Tortoise and the Hare and The Boy Who Cried Wolf. A lesser-known fable is the beaver. In ancient times, the beaver was hunted for its testicles, which it was thought had medicinal qualities. The story is that the animal, when hunted, would gnaw these off to save itself. Juvenal alludes to the fable in a satire. The merchant Catullus jettisons his rich cargo from a ship caught in a storm in imitation of the beaver, that in its desire to escape death will bite off its testicles and render itself a eunuch. The moral that Juvenal and later fabulists drew from the story is that in order to preserve oneself it is better to sacrifice lesser considerations. Well, I for one can see why this fable isn't a very popular one. <laughs> One of Jesus' sayings recorded by Matthew was that there are eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Some of the early church took this as recommending a similar practice. And the early church fathers had to argue constantly that this had to be taken metaphorically and that it was referring instead to abstinence. Making yourself a eunuch to me sounds like sheer madness. Sheer. <laughs> yes, the beaver, <laughs> one of Aesop's works there that I would rate as not absolutely fabulous. So now we move on to our second guest, Annie Gilflin, I happen to know is an archivist, currently doing a PhD in curating a nuclear past, and sometimes can be found teaching modern history at the University of the Highlands and Islands. Her comedy playfully examines what the past can teach us about contemporary life. So, without further ado, please welcome Annie Gilfern. So, I really love the names we give to time. I mean, just, just today, the 26th of March, the 26th day of the month of Mars, the god of war and deep fried chocolate. <laughs> this, this is the season of warfare and battle things, and the most warrior thing I've done this month is sign a very mild-mannered Brexit petition. And I, I love tradition, but I don't think we need a whole month for warfare anymore. I, I don't want to take the calendar away from the Romans, because I hate it when, when colleagues steal credit for something that you've worked really hard on. So I've just picked a different Roman god for March, because I want to live in a more positive society than what Mars has to offer. So I'm suggesting we rename Mars for Cardea, who is the Roman goddess of door hinges. <laughs> so I chose Cardea for three reasons. Firstly, because before I heard of Cardea, I didn't actually realise that the Romans had door hinges. I thought it was like on Star Trek, when people just hide behind the doors and open them when the producer tells them to do so. Um, but also, the Romans have two other gods related to doors. So you've got Foiculus, who's the actual door, and Lamentianus, who's the threshold of the door. So it feels like Cardia could handle the extra workload. And lastly, I just really enjoy door hinges, because there's, there's few other devices that offer, offer such an excellent pivot. And I've been let down by, by windows and door handles, but never, never a hinge. 
Today I'm talking about James Hutton, who is a Scottish doctor, farmer and geologist. And he died on this day 222 years ago. He's often referred to as the father of modern geology. And what I find really fascinating about Hutton is that he developed these incredible theories of time and space by just wandering Scottish mountains and looking at rock formations and asking how these came to be. And I love that because I'm a really keen hill walker and I always think that the landscape is going to inspire greatness in me, but I spend most of my time on the mountain wondering how I'm going to be able to do a sneaky, sneaky wee without anyone noticing. <laughs> Tick behind a bush. <laughs> Hutton wanted to understand the pure material of time. He's like the real Doctor Who, except he didn't have a TARDIS. So it's a wee bit crude, but you've got to imagine the face of the Earth, a big, happy, smiling teenage face, and then imagine it covered in spots and pimples. So Scotland is, is the T-zone, the wee bit between your eyebrows, because it's all, it's all oily and spotty, but the spots are mountains, so they're the best kind of spots. And geologists of the 18th century were kind of obsessed with these spots, but none of them had big enough fingers to pop them. Um, and by understanding these pimples and abnormalities, they could understand the layers of skin underneath. They could age the earth and understand the very essence of this greasy, beautiful face. I like to imagine that if an um, Enlightenment scientist was allowed just one day in the 21st century, then they would spend it on YouTube looking at videos of volcanoes erupting and feeling really guilty and slightly turned on by it. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the main idea that James Hutton crystallised or set in stone because he's a geologist. <laughs> it's called deep time, and it's the concept of geologic time. Essentially, it's the biggest measurement for time on this planet that we find ourselves on today. Um, so you have an eon, which is half a billion years or more, and it's also the time scale that Theresa May has set for death. <laughs> So eons get divided into eras, periods, epochs. If you look at a cliff and you see all the different layers of rock that have built up over thousands of years, this is deep time. It's a bit like if you go into your grandmother's freezer. I never, I never really think about deep time. It's very overwhelming. I never think about deep time in everyday life unless I'm in the queue at middle in which case I'm certain that millennia are just washing over me. So the epoch that we are currently living in is called the Anthropocene, and it's defined by the massive human impact that, that we people are having on the Earth's geology and ecosystems. But scientists can't agree on when this time began. They can't, um, it's a Brexit-sized disagreement because some of them wanted to start with the agricultural revolution, which is 15,000 years ago, and then some of them want it as recent as the detonation of the first nuclear weapon in 1945, which is a total bomb. Um, <laughs> but I think that none of these names for the modern age really sums up human impact on the world. And it's not very catchy, so I think, I think the modern epoch should begin in 1975 and should be renamed the ABBA scene after the year that ABBA released their greatest album, also named ABBA. So, 220 years ago, very sad and a wee bit ironic, James Hutton, and again, what he loved killed him because he died from kidney and bladder stones. If I was a a lesser comedian, I'd have made a punchline about that. <laughs> <laughs> but I hope that what you'll agree with me today with is that James Hutton is a geologist who totally rocks. <laughs> I hope you enjoy the rest of the 26th of Cordea.
On this day in 1830, the Book of Mormon was published. And the full title of the published work was The Book of Mormon, an account written by the hand of Mormon upon plates taken from the plates of Nephi. This is the holy book of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, whose members are often called Mormons because of their belief in the Book of Mormon and because it's easier to say. Joseph Smith claimed in the 1820s he was directed by an angel called Moroni to a hill near his home in Palmyra, New York, where ancient golden plates were buried, inscribed by prophets, and which he translated using special glasses. What you believe in is, of course, a personal decision. Uh, but as Mormons have also suggested that God lives on a planet called Kolob, and the Garden of Eden was in Jackson County, Missouri, I, for one, am reluctant to sign up. Incidentally, Kolob backwards is bollock. <laughs> I personally believe in the power of positive thinking, which was the Book of Norman. That's Norman Vincent Peale, published in 1952. Uh, incidentally, I also have the Big Book of Grilling, Barbecue and Rotisserie, more than 75 recipes for family and friends which is the book by George Foreman, published in 2000. But what a coincidence that the Book of Mormon was published on the same date that Aesop's fables were printed. So, on to our third guest, uh, Matt Jewell. Uh, Matt is a stand-up comedian who describes himself as cheerfully cynical and conversational. He was a finalist in the Hilarity Bites New Act of the Year 2018 and semi-finalist in the Chortle Student Comedian of the Year 2018. His show, A Pessimist's Guide to Being Happy, was going to be on at the festival on the 31st of March at Yes Park. <laughs> but I see the venue has now closed for refurbishment. <laughs> Who could have pessimistically predicted that? So, without further ado, Mr. Matt Jewell, folks. Thank you. Like this place has been refurbished as well down here, so I kind of got a bit worried that I'd, I'd struck again. Uh, so I thought, I, I thought, you know, it's the 26th of uh, March. Uh, a, a significant two ways. Uh, one, it must be uh, the, the day I learned that my sister is pregnant again, uh, and that was today. So that was nice. Uh, my sister, who's 15 years younger than me, um, and I'm older than I look. Don't worry, guys. <laughs> 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 I, I'm 36, almost, so it's, it's fine. She's fine. Uh, yeah, so that, that's happening. Uh, so, uh, so I'm looking forward to some more Uncle of the Year um, cards, uh, which are interesting because I never enter. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> never entered. Can't be that hard to win. I, I, I guess you just don't have to be creepy. Do you know what I mean? That's it. <laughs> so I, I get around that by being absent. So, uh, so, so there's that. Uh, so that's cheerful, uh, and I'm processing that well, as you can tell. Uh, and the, the other cheerful thing I'm talking about, uh, a slight cheat. It was not really the 26th, it was the 25th, but I'm sure, I'm sure it went up to midnight, knowing the way our, our country, in inverted commas, works. But the, uh, the abolition of the Slave Trade Act was passed in 1807 on the 25th of March. Uh, although, uh, interestingly, uh, nothing got done about it until 1833, so uh, anybody who thinks this Brexit debacle's over. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a while to go, guys, that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, it's a very British thing to go, isn't it? You know what I mean? like, we, we've abolished, uh, we've abolished uh, slavery. Yeah, but does that mean my slaves? <laughs> yeah, it does be good, but I treat them well. Still slaves, mate. <laughs> so this is that. And also the hypocrisy of, like, you know, Britain one day going, do you know what, guys? I think slavery's bad. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, Britain had been using slaves for, for thousands of years. That's like the other day when I told my girlfriend off for spilling toast crumbs in the bread. Uh, in the bed, sorry, do you know what I mean? In the bread? <laughs> do you know what I mean? I, 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 you know, all I'm saying is I've been guilty of that crime many a time. And it was mentioned to me, but I waited until she did it. <laughs> and then I got her. Uh, and now I sleep downstairs. So, uh, <laughs> so that's British foreign policy for you guys. Uh, it works. It's still working well, I see. Uh, uh, yeah, there's a state that was interesting. I, 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 I researched that was uh, between sort of 1890 and, and no, sorry, 1790 and 1806. Uh, British transported about 666,000 um, people, slaves across the Atlantic, uh, which is approximately the uh, population of Glasgow. 
Uh, imagine that, guys, like transporting the population of Glasgow across the Atlantic. Do you know what I mean? Like, how many Weatherspoons would you need on that ship? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? How many beer and burger deals would that be, you know? I don't know. Uh, also a lot of tenants. Maybe, maybe, they, uh, maybe they built um, tenements, uh, as a pun. Uh, oh. Yeah, that's, that's my, my one pun for the year, done. Uh, uh, it, yeah, it's interesting, uh, there was a guy called uh, William Wilberforce, he was, he was, he was the guy who, who took it upon himself, there's a few people nodding, like this guy's done his research, yeah, I can read Wikipedia too, guys. Uh, and uh, he, uh, he, he said it was his divinely ordained crusade to, to, uh, to abolish slavery, which is really unfortunate language, isn't it? A crusade, do you know what I mean? That reminds me of a time the Daily Telegraph uh, was commenting, you're talking about uh, the England cricketers' uh, easy victory over Sri Lanka when they called it a whitewash, do you know what I mean? It's like, maybe you shouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and he has two main objects. He has uh, the, abol the abolishment of slave trade and the reformation of manners by God Almighty and Jesus Christ. Uh, to which his wife said, mind the language. <laughs> I was really proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> it's really rare that I write a joke that I laugh at, guys. So. <laughs> That's my fun for the year. <laughs> Long story short, uh, the, the act was kind of like brought in in 1807, 1833 is when they kind of technically legally abolished it in, in the colonies, and it still, um, but, but, but that didn't stop British uh, British ships um, trading in the slave market. They just had uh, they just had to deal with a hundred pound fine if they could get caught, <laughs> which is nice, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? That's nice. It's like that's less than a TV license fine. That's, that's that, isn't it? And, uh, and, and true British fashion. I, I, so what, what used to happen is, um, now quite horrifically, we really shouldn't be joking about this, but here we go. Uh, <laughs> yeah, quite, quite horrifically. Uh, so what, what slave traders would do is if they saw a British Navy ship, uh, 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 ship approach, they would sort of shove the slaves overboard and then just claim blind ignorance while the, the Navy ship sailed through. Just a load of African slaves in the, in the water. That's that, that, like, because I'm a teacher, so I'll be like, is, is that yours? <laughs> <laughs> so I'll be like, nah, it was, it was here when we got here. <laughs> so that's, that's it, really. So this is the anniversary of, uh, of the British Empire, uh, um, you know, doing what it does best, surely. <laughs> Pa pa pass an act, and it likes acts because, like an act, it, it doesn't really do it, does it? <laughs> uh, so, so that's uh, that, that's me. I haven't prepared anywhere near as much as these guys. Um, one's a historian, and one was also great. So uh, that's my excuse. Uh, interestingly, you said your man died above uh, Stoke Newington in uh, in, in Spoon. So I used to live above that. Do you know what I mean? So, <laughs> That makes you a millionaire nowadays. <laughs> They're expensive. Uh, but that's, that's me, guys, and I hope you've enjoyed hearing about the harrowing past that we have. And also, can I say that I think we are now in history. The next two or three weeks, this is history. We're literally in it. We're going to be talking about these shitty through. Am I allowed to switch? Oh, I've done it now. Uh, <laughs> did, bollocks, uh, did you? Yeah. I don't think it's quite on the same level, do you know what I mean? Like, bollocks would be in the relegation zone in the Premier League of swear words. Um, but anyway, yeah, so the next three weeks, you know, we're, we're going to be talking about them. So, so isn't that exciting? We're, we're down here in a basement experiencing history. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> On this day in 1885, the first cremation took place in England. Jeanette Candice Pickersgill of Regent's Park was cremated in Woking Crematorium. The practice had been legalised the year before after William Price, a druid, had cremated his infant son and was not prosecuted for doing so. Woking crematorium first practised by burning the carcass of a horse. It was nay bother. <laughs> There's a pun for you, Matt. <laughs> Famous people since cremated there include Alan Turing, Friedrich Engels, and Rick Parfit, guitarist from Status Quo. Persons were made especially to go round Rick's coffin and were held together with three simple chords. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
if they were looking for some appropriate music to play, what better than Quo's 11th studio album, uh, entitled If You Can't Stand The Heat. <laughs> uh, one of Quo's most catchy tunes, Whatever You Want, was once used by Argos. It's surprising to think that the group were playing as long ago as the time of the Trojan Wars. <laughs> <laughs> My brother once asked me to burn a Quo CD for him. I only had rudimentary equipment, so it took me about ten minutes before the plastic melted and caught fire. <laughs> On to our fourth guest then. Um, Vladimir McTavish has been performing in stand-up comedy for over 25 years, 20 of those at the Edinburgh Fringe, where he hosts his own chat show every year. Although a native of Scotland, he has toured all over the world. And he's also a director of the famous Stand Comedy Club. He's so popular with other comedians that his own 60th birthday party won the Best Event Award at the Scottish Comedy Awards two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, please welcome Vladimir Mertavich. Um, thank you very much for inviting me on to lower the tone of this show. Yes, as you pointed out, Richard, I've been doing stand-up comedy for 25 years, so as you can see, in that time I've built up quite a following. Um, <laughs> 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 and, uh, I did notice as well, uh, everyone else had their educational qualifications mentioned in their introduction. I must mention mine. mine I have a degree in drama from Newcastle Polytechnic, which is now the University of Northumbria at Newcastle, which is a bit of a sunrise nightmare, but could have been worse. Uh, when they granted the university status in 1992, they were going to call the place the City University of Newcastle on Tyne. And um, the <laughs> design consultants found as a pound to come up with a new corporate logo and did that, and he presented the academic board with uh, artist impressions of what the signage on campus would look like, but the name changed to City University of Newcastle on time. They also did an artist impression of the minibus repainted with the City University of Newcastle on time on it. And it was only when they had 5,000 t-shirts printed C-U-N-T on the front of them. Maybe you want to know what I on, on with the history part of the show, um, as Richard so kindly pointed out, yes, I am over 60 years older, and when I was uh, researching events that happened on this day, I continually find myself saying, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Which was quite depressing. <laughs> yes, um, it is so happens on this day, 26th of March in 2017, Theresa May was Prime Minister of the UK. Surprisingly, on this day, the 26th of March, 2018, Theresa May was still the Prime Minister <laughs> of the UK. <laughs> Unbelievably, today, on the 26th of March, 2019, somehow, Theresa May is still the Prime Minister of the UK. <laughs> As Mark said, we are living through history, we're living through a, 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 a uniquely depressing time in our history. I mean, I, I know British people have always had a kind of rather semi-detached attitude to Europe, and I think we're all very aware of the way that uh, British people often behave when we're abroad, uh, mainly by not bothering to learn the language and decide the best thing to do when trying to order a meal in Spain rather than learning Spanish is to talk very widely, very slowly, in English. And I kind of think that's probably how Theresa May negotiated the exit deal with the European Union. <laughs> um, yeah, today, uh, just so happens today, is also the 32nd birthday of Scotland international striker Stephen Fletcher. Yes, and he decided to celebrate five days early by making himself unavailable for the game last Thursday in Kazakhstan. <laughs> when Scotland, after 150 years of underachievement, actually managed the worst ever international result. Now, do we have any fans of the Scotland football team? I don't mean in the room, I mean just 
cattle. <laughs> <laughs> I was one. It's a, it's a journey of disappointment being a Scotland football fan, and in fact, we, we are constantly disappointed. Uh, to the extent that we've actually turned disappointment into something akin to an art form. I can make a few nations on there that do disappointment better than we do. If I had the, I'd go as far as, I reckon if there was a world championship for disappointment, Scotland wouldn't qualify. <laughs> it was on this day, it just happens, on the 26th of March, 1934, was when the UK driving test was introduced. So up until 1934, any idiot could get behind the wheel of a motor vehicle and drive it totally legally. Now, not only was the driving test introduced, but also the age limit was introduced. So any idiot of any age whose feet were long, or legs were long enough for the feet to reach the pedals could drive a motor vehicle on the roads of Britain. Now, when you think about that for a minute, that means there could be a 98-year-old driving on the roads of Britain who has never passed a driving test. And you think that's ridiculous, just think of the Duke of Edinburgh. There's been various deaths on this day, uh, on this day, the 26th of March. Um, Jesus Christ died, or so we thought one year. Next <laughs> <laughs> year, we thought he died on the 12th of April. <laughs> it's a bit of a movable feast, Christ. <laughs> uh, uh, if anything gives the clue as to how ridiculous Christianity is, it's the fact they can't decide when the most significant event in Christian history <laughs> actually happens. <laughs> Because I'm told that uh, Christ, um, the, the Last Supper itself, obviously, just before he died, he went out with his 12 best mates and had a few drinks. It was a Friday, so they went for a big style. And then uh, he just disappeared. And then ended up three days later in a cave. <laughs> Sounds to me like a stag didn't go wrong. <laughs> Finally, in this day, on, um, in this day, in 1857, Ludwig van Beethoven died. Yes, that was the day he stopped composing and started decomposing. <laughs> 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 We're all going to have one part of this show, ladies and gentlemen, that's fine. <laughs> about the driver test and apparently the first person to pass their test was called Mr Bean. <laughs> yes. Which predated the mini bar 24 years. Uh, it's not known if he used his new skills to take a holiday. Okay. Uh, well I, I was so bad at learning to drive that when I finally got the car into first gear the instructor kissed me. I thought well that's just a bit forward. <laughs> So, uh, yes, a bit like Easter, we'll pass over that one. <laughs> and so on to the second part of the show. So, uh, I think we should just have another round of applause for our four wonderful guests. And we're, we're Thank you. But uh, in the second half, we want to uh, talk about Glasgow, where we are tonight, and maybe dig up some alternative histories of, of the place. So uh, I'll just sort of kick off. Um, basically, if you want to say anything, any of the panellists, then um, we'll try and pass the mic along, but so it's, it's, it should be all of us joining in here. Uh, but anyway, to start with, the origin of the name Glasgow is disputed, uh, not like the locals to get into any kind of dispute. Uh, <laughs> it comes either from the older Cumbric glass cow or from the Middle Gaelic meaning Green Valley or Green Basin. Uh, Glasgow is twinned with many different places all over the world, it's not immediately obvious why. Uh, Glasgow is twinned with Dalian in China, Lahore in Pakistan, and Rostov on Don in Russia. Twinned with Marseille, with its hot summer Mediterranean climate, the sunniest and driest major city in France, where one million visitors arrive annually on cruise ships. Uh, Havana, with its tropical climate. Bethlehem, birthplace of Jesus. 
Incidentally, uh, the church of the Nativity in Bethlehem was badly damaged when it was sacked by the Samaritans during a revolt in 529. Uh, you know times are depressingly bad when it's the Samaritans who are trashing the place. Okay, well that's, that's not, uh, not plausibility. We'll keep going. So St. Mungo, the city motto is Let Glasgow Flourish, which was from a sermon by St. Mungo. He was also called by his baptismal name, which was Kentigern, and that comes from the British Kuno Tigernos, which is composed of the elements Kun, a hound, and Tigerno, a lord, uh, prince or king. Now, if I join those together, I actually get Kuntigerno. Um, not quite sure why he's not called that, but anyway. Um, Mungo, he was born in 518 AD and died in 614, which, if you work it out, is an amazing lifespan for a Glaswegian. Uh, One of the legends is to do with a tree. Mungo had been left in charge of a fire in St. Sir's Monastery. He fell asleep and the fire went out. Taking a hazel branch, he restarted the fire. So he was like the original prodigy (laughs) as a fire starter. Now, he actually died in the bath. Should we talk about Subway? So the subway in Glasgow was opened in 1896. It's actually the third oldest in the world after London. London is one, and this other one is. It's actually Budapest. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. You didn't know that? Yeah, I just just didn't say it. Well, I I did a little research. Uh, Sorry, I I missed uh, I I did did a little bit of research on my name in Glasgow myself. Sorry, I, I missed that bit. Um, um, and uh, overawed by the research done, but I feel like that's the only research I've done. So, Glasgow uh, is a very, yeah, it's from a Gaelic word that means um, a, a deer green city, uh, which uh, I don't associate either of those words with Glasgow, deer or green. Uh, you know, the next thing you're going to tell me, Dundee is called modern and drug free. <laughs> uh, actually, uh, incidentally, Edinburgh comes from an old Glaswegian word that just means pricks. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, and there's, there's an old Gaelic word that also it also kind of means uh, English students doing too much improv, but uh, that's a yeah, uh, that resonates with me anyway. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, the, the clock of orange, isn't it? The Glasgow thing is called the clock of orange. I didn't know that. I knew it was orange. <laughs> Uh, I don't think it's especially punctual, so I don't know why it's called clockwork. Uh, Glasgow is not really known for its fruit, either, is it? So, um, um, so I guess I guess it must be called like the film because it's like in, like in Glasgow. Maybe I'm presuming my Glasgow friends tell me that anybody who, who likes milk or classical music is just considered weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's me. It's the subway. You can go on a pub crawl, a subway pub crawl, where you get off at every stop and have a drink. And it's, uh, that's why it was invented. One <laughs> 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 transport system built solely for this. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, I remember the old subway, this is, this is going to be a recurring theme. Is, I remember quite well this. Because I grew up in Glasgow, I, I, now, I now actually stay in Edinburgh. I had to move because of my wife. Uh, she's still in Glasgow. So I, <laughs> <laughs> I remember, uh, there's bits of Glasgow history I remember being the future. I remember growing up in Glasgow when they had, uh, when they were building the high flats, right? The high flats they built in the early 1960s. And that was the future. And quite a lot of them are now history. Because quite a lot of the high flats were built in Glasgow in the 1960s have now been demolished. Therefore having even a shorter lifespan than most Glaswegians, which is... <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the Red Road Flats, which uh, were built in 1968, I believe, or something like that, they were demolished uh, for the Commonwealth Games opening ceremony. Blown up, exploded, and that was basically the city planner's idea at the time. So, wouldn't it be a laugh if it just blow these up in 15 years' time? <laughs> 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 I had a bit more about.
about the subway. Yeah, known as the Clockwork Orange, a, a, a film where subjects are forced to watch scenes of violence as therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine why it was called that. But um, it, it does seem an odd choice for a film. That, I mean, you could, you could call the subway after other films based on the subway stops. So, for example, uh, Any Govern Sunday, Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. Uh, I brought saying hello and uh, Buchanan Ball Run. Now, uh, most of its carriages were painted orange, which was the corporate colour of Greater Glasgow Passenger Transport Executive at the time, but they referred to it as Strathclyde PTE Red rather than orange because of its sectarian connotations. Now, ironically, the Catholic Church banned Catholics from watching the film, so it seems ironic to me. <laughs> Any more from the subway? Okay, I want to introduce something which happened in 1785, and that was a hot air balloon flight which took off from Glasgow. It was an Italian Vincenzo Lunardi, who was the self styled daredevil aeronaut, and he was the first man to make a free floating balloon flight across English skies before making five flights in Scotland in what he called his Grand Air Balloon. Now, the balloon was hydrogen-filled, so that was made by having vats of sulfuric acid, water, and dye and filings. It was 140 square metres uh, and made of green, pink and yellow silk and was exhibited by suspending it in its floating state in the choir of St Mungo's Cathedral in Glasgow. And there was an admission charge of one shilling to see this thing. So that's how he made his money. Uh, Leonardo took to the air at 2pm on 23rd November 1785 from St Andrew's Square in Glasgow and he covered 110 miles in two hours, passing over Hamilton. That's a good idea. Steady. And Lanark before landing at the feet of some trembling shepherds in Hoyk. Um, Leonardo's balloon inspired ladies' fashions in skirts and hats. The Lenardi bonnet is mentioned in Robert Burns's poem, To a Louse. It was balloon-shaped and two foot high. That's the hat, not the mouse. <laughs> uh, on his first flight from English soil, Lenardi was accompanied by a dog, a cat and a pigeon. I assume the pigeon was in a cage, otherwise <laughs> what would be the point? Um, before ascending, he made his will. Uh, <laughs> much confidence he had in what he was doing. Uh, Leonardi described the Scots having met them as a hardy race full of men of science and liberality. <laughs> well, that was an uplifting story. <laughs> uh, Scots would have to wait another century and a half for their gyro. Very special strength. Uh, is, that, is that inspiring anyone? So I seem to be doing most of the talking here, unless you want to, unless you want to kick off your own thing. Yeah, David's going to take over the mic. I was just thinking in terms of the balloon flight, was there not a couple of years after that, was there not a, a Ryan year balloon that said it was going to fly from Paris to Glasgow <laughs> and turned up in Dunoon? got <laughs> a bus for the rest of the journey back to Glasgow. But weren't these early balloon pioneers, weren't they like the like annual rock stars in their time? Did they not attract like massive crowds of people? Um, yeah, they were really they were really sought after, weren't they? They were like kind of a latter-day rock group. I mean I think I've still got a, a t-shirt from Mongolfia's European tour from 1784 lying in the cupboard somewhere in the Washington. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I forget which, I think it was, uh, there, there was another Scot, I think it was Tittler, if I got the right one, who, uh, someone died on the balloon flight, so he was, I'm not getting mixed up, maybe with another balloonist, but because someone died, he then kind of went into penury and was shunned, and had a bit like a rock star, but once someone died, that was, that was the end of his fame, apparently. Yeah, um, you say they died on a balloon flight, did they, like, that must have been a weird journey home. Like it's a really small basket, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Like, like, I mean, I've seen kit. I don't know much about hot balloons. I've seen on kids shows, and on kids shows, it seems to be about a basket about the size of this table. Somebody died 
that would that would lessen your enjoyment of it. <laughs> <laughs> that would be rough, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or they fell out, which in many ways might be worse. <laughs> I think that might have been what happened. <laughs> <laughs> they got tangled in ropes or something. And fell or out. you just pretend they fell out. You'd be like, I'm yes. like, not doing seven hours of this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to move on then to another topic, which was uh, in 1859, Glasgow's water supply from Loch Katrine was opened by Queen Victoria. So Glasgow's drinking water originates 35 miles away from this loch in the Trossachs, and obviously it's a freshwater loch. Uh, in, in the 1850s, the city's population was expanding rapidly in the desperate need of a good, clean and safe water supply, as uh, diseases like cholera were rife. So it was an English civil engineer, John Frederick Bateman, in 1852, who was employed to find the best source for the water supply. He'd previously designed the Manchester's water supply system and suggested that Loch Katrina is the best candidate. Now, it took three and a half years to complete. The supply system involves construction of a dam, 26 miles of aqueducts, 46 miles of distribution pipes, and the storage reservoir at the Gyne. To ensure the water travelled, the pipe had to drop 10 inches for every mile of its 26 mile length. Uh, James Gale, Chief Water Engineer of the Glasgow Corporation, described the aqueduct network as worthy to bear comparison with the most extensive aqueducts in the world, not excluding those of ancient Rome. It took three and a half years to complete and cost £468,000, or £60 million in today's money. And Katrine comes from the Gaelic cattle thief. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, Sir Walter Scott has a poem, The Lady of the Lake, which is a fictional poem based uh, on that lock. Oil-fired vessels are not permitted to sail on it in case of uh, pollutants. Anyway, Queen Victoria, she opened the new works and there was a Gothic royal cottage and a jetty built especially for her use during her visit, as she had requested. Now, she didn't stay overnight because the welcoming 21-gun salute shattered the windows of the cottage. <laughs> she could have stayed taps on. Uh, <laughs> uh, the Lord Provost Robert Stewart was the driving force behind the scheme and the Stewart Memorial Fountain in Kelvin Grove Park from 1872 celebrates the establishment of the Lock Katrine Waterworks. Is any of the panel feeling inspired or should I move? I'm doing all the talking here. I feel like I need to get up a toilet. Waterworks is kind of, yes. I used to go, as a child, we used to go. For a walk on a Sunday afternoon, they see this is me remembering history. <laughs> <laughs> we used to go to, to walk around the waterworks in the Mogai. That was a day out. And was it not all fenced off after two thousand and one? Did I read? Well, this was before two thousand and one, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that that's what yeah. we for walks. But yeah, that, I think people used to piss in it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I saw somebody pissing in it once. Was it you? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might be my brother. <laughs> but no. We've all got bottled water as well. Yeah, yeah. So no, we right. yeah. <laughs> ah, but the thing is, see, Glaswich is a very, very, very proud of the water. I think as a city, we, as a kid, we were really proud of how good the water was in Glasgow. It's, it's so silly. I mean, nobody drinks this stuff. The water of life. I like to see. You know how that over here we get sort of like uh, we get the uh, you know like Swiss bottled water or something. Do you know what I mean? Or uh, you know from you know or from some volcanic um, island in the Pacific. I, I like to think that on that Pacific island they have a bottle of Glaswegian water. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I think, I think that would be good. I think you know. I think Glasgow is pretty. It's an up and coming city. You should have its own water supply, uh, and it, with, it, with its own unique little flavour, as you've been talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll talk about the freedom of the city. So that's been awarded to 155 people since 1800. It's awarded by the Council to persons of distinction or persons who have rendered eminent service to the city and is usually bestowed upon a valued member of the community or upon a visiting celebrity or dignitary and is conferred by the Lord Provost of Glasgow. Now, if you receive the award, you have a number of rights or duties. So you, you have rights to trade within the borough, especially uh, on market days. You have the right to graze your cows on the common land. <laughs> And you have the right to fish on the Clyde. 
You'll get the food in the city, aren't you? Um, but you also have a duty to patrol and guard the town and a duty to defend the town by arms. Now, one of the recipients of those, one of those 155 people was Joseph Lister, not the one from Red Dwarf, but the Right Honourable Sir Joseph Lister, Baron Lister of Lyme Regis, PCOM, DCL, LLD, DSC, MD, PRS, who was given the freedom of the city in 1908. He was a professor of surgery at the University of Glasgow and he read about the experiments of the French chemist Louis Pasteur on microorganisms and methods of eliminating them, which led to his developing antiseptic techniques for treating wounds. Um, he sprayed surgical instruments, incisions and dressings with a solution of phenol called carbonic acid, which was derived from coal tar and prevented wounds from becoming gangrenous. So in August 1865, Lister applied a piece of lint dipped in carbolic acid solution onto the wound of a seven-year-old boy at Glasgow Infirmary, who had sustained a compound fracture after a cartwheel had passed over his leg. No infection developed, and after six weeks, the boy's bones had fused back together. This is just history, there's no comedy now. <laughs> uh, we're running out of ideas. Uh, Lister left Glasgow University in 1869, and a building at the Royal Infirmary here houses uh, cytopathology, microbiology, and pathology departments, named in Lister's honour to recognise his work at the hospital. Uh, 24th of August 1902, Edward VII came down with appendicitis two days before his scheduled coronation. The king needed an appendectomy, and such surgery at the time was, uh, it posed extremely high risk of infection and death. So Lister was consulted and advised the king's surgeons in the latest antiseptic surgical methods, and the king survived. He later told Lister, I know that if it had not been for you and your work, I wouldn't be sitting here today. So Lister had saved King Edward when the chips were down. <laughs> right, well, I've probably been going almost nearly an hour. I've, I've got random facts here, so if this sets anything off the panel, please grab the mic off me. I'll grab the mic. Okay, so over to Annie, thank you. Um, I think this is the perfect time to talk about an alternate, some alternative heroes of Glasgow. <laughs> So coming up next week, we've got the 199th anniversary of the radical war of Glasgow. Incredible, it's, oh, it's incredible history. So the radical war lasted a whole week, uh, from the 1st to 8th of April, 1820, and it was predominantly artisans, uh, weavers who were threatened by the Industrial Revolution, had high rates of unemployment, uh, couldn't afford any food, got themselves in a total tangle, because they're weavers. <laughs> <laughs> and they, um, they were protesting and demonstrating for electoral reform, for representation of the people. Um, they, they, didn't, they didn't get what they wanted, um, because the British government wasn't very happy about these strikes at all. Um, 88 men charged with treason, uh, 20, including um, Vladimir McTavish, were sentenced to penal transport to Transmania. And um, multiple, multiple leaders were executed. I thought you were on tour. But true, from the executions, which is, is unusual for the time, two of the leaders were hung but then also beheaded. And you just think, why, like, why is the British government worried that these socialists are going to be vampires, you know? Like, <laughs> scrape off the face and cut out the heart. It's just absolutely barbaric. Um, but yes, uh, just singing the song of the, the heroes of the 1820 radical war, because eventually we did get representation of the people, and thanks to those Weavers, we have a democracy with no strings attached. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can actually answer that question. I actually know why they would cut off the head. Uh, this is uh, weird. I, I, um, 
I don't read much history. Uh, I'm an English teacher, uh, so it means I don't read because uh, I read professionally, so I'm not going to do it my own time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, uh, but uh, there was a history magazine that I share a, a, a base, like a, a department with me, a history editor, a history editor, and I opened it up, and there was a William Jewell, which is my name, and he, he was one of the first documented people to survive hanging. He actually survived hanging. It was quite common, well, not common, it was like 30 or 40 cases in about 200 years. But the interesting thing is, once they were hung and then transported to a medical facility, the, 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 the Hippocratic Oath then kicked in, and the doctor had to revive them. So that's why, that's why they did it. They, they would behead them because, because they were worried about if they're still alive, the doctor has to revive them, and the doctor might not be might not be security expert. <laughs> <laughs> so so that, that's, that's why they would behead it. It's quite barbaric, but then... Um, so all types of killing. Says <laughs> <laughs> an Englishman in Glasgow. Just uh, <laughs> thought, wouldn't it just have been more time effective to have me? Don't be silly, Vladimir. Waste time hanging the guy. Have you said that? Think of all those jobs in the rope industry that would have been lost. Yeah, they have turned into socialists as yeah. well. So all that hanging would have made the news. Mm. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're almost out of time. So what is any, yes, cool. Richard, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't the police force invented in Glasgow? It was. Yeah, I thought I thought so. Um, yeah, so good on the police force in Glasgow for being invented, the first one. Um, I used to work in newspapers and I came across the police many times and they had some weird and wonderful ways to solve crime. I remember a few years ago my car was broken in two so I went up to the police station and I said my car's just been broken into and the window's all smashed and this police inspector came out and said don't worry mate, I'll fix that for you. I was like oh my god they must have, they must have caught the guy, they must know who's done it. So he went away, came back two minutes later with a bin bag and they said, here, that will do your windy, sir. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> before the uh, police cuts uh, took effect, the, the, the police used to give out golden handcuffs around the whole of the city. It was known as heavy police presence. <laughs> uh, I, I've, got a, I've got a weird fact. Um, also, I do, I, do, I do see the logic of that. Somebody, uh, when, was, when was it invented, the police force? About 18... Yeah. I don't have a year. So, I know. I know. It's like sixty years before the London one, uh, London police force was invented. So, well, not invented. So, yeah. Well, yeah. But speaking, yeah. But so, so was somebody. So for many, I mean, that's just like true Glaswegian spirit. For many years, people just went, yeah, things are fine. <laughs> and then somebody went, I think we know how to improve this. <laughs> Law. That's uh, actually uh, one thing I, I, I read somewhere in the bowels of the internet, that, uh, which is which is apt, uh, that the tikka masala was maybe invented in Glasgow. Do you know what I mean? Tikka masala being what, what is it? It's, it's a it's a it's a, a weak copy, uh, inauthentic, or inauthentically made, and it's you know it's sold to gullible tourists. Um, I, you would have thought it would be invented in Edinburgh, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> so Washed down with water that's been fished in. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just remains for me then to thank all the guests. So we've had David Crookshanks, <laughs> Andrew Cullen, <laughs> Matt and and uh, also to the, the organisers here at the venue. Thank you for putting us up. Uh, just to quickly say for the purposes of the podcast, more shows to come throughout the year. Uh, the Brighton Fringe Festival, 4th and 5th of May, 11.35, both days at Sweetworks. At the Ludlow Fringe, Sunday 23rd of June. Buxton Fringe, Sunday 21st of July, 13.30 at the Rotunda Theatre. Bedford Fringe, Monday 22nd of July, 19.30 at Studio Theatre. Guildford Fringe Festival, Wednesday 24th of July, 1930 at the Star Inn. The Reading Fringe on 25th of July, that's a Thursday, 
19.30 up the three guineas. And finally, Edinburgh Fringe on Tuesdays, 6.13th and 20th of August, 1600 at the Beehive Inn in the Grass Market. Uh, I think we should end with uh, another historical fact on this day. Uh, the first royal email was sent on this day by the Queen from the Royal Signals and Radar Establishment. Can the panel like, uh, like to guess what year that was? The first royal email? 1995. From 1995. I, I reckon like 1810. I reckon they sat on that technology for a while. <laughs> just, just after the paint black. Yeah. <laughs> 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 1998. I think the Queen adapts to technology quite late. I'd say 2010. Well, I'm going to amaze you. It's 1976. Oh, no! Uh, yeah, she did it in 1976, so she's actually well up on these things. I think she's just started. To, what, what's she done recently? She's on Instagram, hasn't she? Oh, Instagram. She's on Instagram. She's, yeah, she's on Instagram. She's got about 5 million followers. Yeah, she, she had WhatsApp in the 80s, guys. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> So the first royal email sent on this day in 1976, it was perhaps the first and only time that the sender of an email tried to put the recipients in the subject line. <laughs> <laughs>